Peace be upon you. God willing, this week we're going to play an audio from a documentary from the History Channel. And the documentary is about Constantine, the uh, Emperor of Rome, and uh, the influence he had on modern-day Christianity. And a lot of this uh, paganism that is uh, depicted in the Quran in regards to modern-day Christianity uh, can be stemmed back to, uh, to Constantine. And this documentary does a good job as far as explaining uh, how this all came to be. Uh, some of the verses in the Quran in regards to uh, modern-day Christianity uh, are predominantly in chapter uh, 5. And uh, 5 is entitled The Feast, and it's about the feast that Jesus brought uh, before his departure uh, and the disciples uh, who asked for such a feast. So a lot of the chapter talks about uh, Jesus and Mary, um, his birth, uh, his death. And um, three verses in it talk about Christianity as a modern-day Christianity as a form of paganism. In 517, it reads, Pagans indeed are those who say that God is the Messiah, the Son of Mary. Say, who could oppose God if he willed to annihilate the Messiah, Son of Mary, and his mother, and everyone on earth? To God belongs the sovereignty of the heavens and the earth, and everything between them. He creates whatever he wills. God is omnipotent. In chapter 5, verse 72, it reads, Pagans indeed are those who say that God is the Messiah, Son of Mary. The Messiah himself said, O children of Israel, you shall worship God. My Lord and your Lord, anyone who sets up any idol beside God, God has forbidden paradise for him, and his destiny is hell. The wicked have no helpers. And in 573 it reads, Pagans indeed are those who say that God is a third of a trinity. There is no God except the one God, unless they refrain from saying this. Those who disbelieve among them will incur a painful retribution. And if you actually read the uh, the Bible, and in some versions, they actually have uh, what Jesus wrote, uh, said in red. Um, you'll never see Jesus saying that he's God, he's the Son of God, he's a part of God, anything of this nature. Uh, everything that Jesus says that's uh, documented in the Gospels is the worship of God alone, to basically love God, your Lord, my Lord, with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. Um, but this concept of God being, a, you know, a trinity and Jesus being the Son of God is actually, it's it's a pagan uh, foundation, and uh, we can stem this a lot back to Constantine. So God willing, we're going to play the documentary, and just a heads up, the first two and a half minutes are a little choppy, but then it clean, the audio gets cleaned up, so uh, uh, bear with me, and uh, inshallah, we'll uh, be able to learn from this. And um, if you got any comments or questions, hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com, or uh, on Twitter at TalkCron, and uh, inshallah, you enjoyed this documentary. Peace and God bless. A battle for the soul of Christianity. On the one side is a devout group calling for a direct spiritual relationship with God, with their own set of Gospels. On the other side, a growing hierarchy of Orthodox Christianity that accepts only four Gospels. The result of this battle would determine the future of Christianity. But at the very beginning days of the faith, there literally was no gospel and no Christian Bible. Christianity begins around the year 30 AD with a group of Jews who follow the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. 
The stories of Jesus were not written down for decades. Scholars believe the earliest gospel, the Gospel of Mark, was written about 70 AD, 40 years after the death of Jesus. But his was not the only gospel. By the year 200 AD, there were not just the four gospels, there may have been as many as 50. They bore titles like the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of the Hebrews, and the Revelation of Peter. Some of these books were mentioned by ancient writers, but until recently, these Gospels had all disappeared. What happened to them, and why are there only four Gospels today? The answer comes down less to faith and more to politics. The Bible didn't fall out of the sky. The Bible was finally put together by Christian thinkers who represented a particular point of view. The surprising fact is that the Christian Bible as we know it didn't really emerge until 300 years after the death of Jesus. And the man who determined the content of the Christian Bible had a powerful agenda that had little to do with religion. goes, the Roman Emperor Constantine had a vision of the cross, which inspired him to adopt Jesus as his savior. As a result, the West became Christian. But did Constantine really convert to Christianity? Or are modern Christians worshiping a version of Jesus created by a die-hard pagan? And underneath modern Istanbul, the city that Constantine built, until Constantine, some 300 years after the crucifixion, Christianity was essentially an illegal movement. After Constantine, within a few years, a few decades, it would become the official religion of the Roman Empire and the reason why so much of the world today is Christian. The question is, who was he? And the religion that he created, is it a religion that Jesus would recognize? A pagan who believed in multiple gods, claimed to have had a vision of the cross before a battle. After his victory, he became a convert to the religion of Christianity, eventually making it the semi-official state religion. The most important statement we have from him is his triumphal arch in Rome. On it, Simca doesn't find a single Christian icon, but he does find pagan symbols. On this panel, Constantine is surrounded by pagan gods, the god of the river Tiber, a winged goddess of victory, and by Roma, goddess of Rome, an archaeological patchwork of pagan symbolism, compelling evidence that Constantine only adopted Christian ideas to gain favor with Roman soldiers in both his and Maxentius's armies. But winning over common soldiers wasn't enough. To gain control over the entire Roman Empire, Constantine needed the support of the officer corps and the Roman elite. Many members of these classes belonged to a mysterious cult that had been around since before Jesus. That cult was called Mithraism, named after a Mediterranean sun god called Mithras. How did Constantine mobilize both these religions to serve his own ends? Can it be that what appealed to him was a blend of Mithraism and Christianity? Did he fuse the two together to create a super religion that would allow him to gain control over the entire Roman world? Not far from the Roman military fort where Simca has seen evidence 
of Christian soldiers in Constantine's army. Another fort was discovered in 1949 by a French bulldog sniffing for bones. But instead of bones or Christian symbols, this fort revealed a special temple built by Roman officers that were devoted to the pagan god, Mithras. Mithraism was an elitist and secret religion practiced only by men. Initiates walked into this clandestine temple lit only by a few torches. Arriving at the front of the temple, these initiates would have seen an altar to the god Mithras, rays projecting from his head. Lit from behind by candlelight, the halo effect symbolized Mithras's status as a sun god, a striking precursor to the halo that surrounds the head of Jesus. This could be mere coincidence if it weren't for the fact that archaeologists have found the remains of Mithraic temples all over the Roman Empire. And more often than not, those temples were found hidden beneath the world's first Christian churches. To see one of these Mithraeums, Simca now goes to the Santa Prisca Church in Rome. Here, excavators pulled up the floor of the church and discovered one of the largest Mithraic temples ever found. In cavernous, dark rooms like these, the Roman elite would worship in secret. This is amazing. I feel like I'm in the Notre Dame Cathedral of <laughs> Mithraism. Well, this is a pretty sizable one. The idea is, is this is a recreation of the primal cave where Mithras commits the sacrifice of the bull, which is the core event in Mithraism. The one source of light in this dark temple illuminates the centerpiece, a bas-relief that depicts the main myth of Mithraic belief. Jutting out from the primordial rock, the sun god Mithras, the son of the sun, slaughters the sacrificial bull. And through the shedding of his blood, the universe is created anew. Essentially what we're seeing is Mithras being seen as the key creator god who makes possible the regeneration of life. And you've got the primordial rock, you know, the cocoon out of which the whole universe is born. Impressive, but it also sounds pretty pagan. And yet, a strange inscription here suggests a more Christian approach. We don't have many inscriptions of Mithras. Right. It's a secret, and they didn't write that much. This is unusual, this place, that it does have a very faded inscription. That now. is correct. One particular text, the Latin, translates as, and you have saved us through the shedding of the eternal blood. You have saved us through the shedding of the eternal blood. Yes. So here, the central bloodletting yes. is seen as an act of salvation. Yes, and the, the key event in the whole nature of cosmic creation and the whole nature of life. Mithras sacrifices the bull and spills its blood. Strangely corresponding of Jesus offering his own blood to save mankind. But the similarities don't end there. A lot of the Mithraic rituals very closely corresponded to what the Christians would do in their worship. 
the sacred meal that they would participate in is taking the body or the blood of this sacrifice by sharing a meal of bread and wine. Here? Here. So it's communion. It's a basically a communion, a Eucharist. And those who partake in this feast will live forever. So just as Christians reenact the Last Supper with Jesus before his death, a form of communion was also practiced here. And just as Jesus died and was resurrected, so was Mithras. Which is why at this altar, Mithras is pictured right next to a sculpture of an Egyptian god. And this particular god, if you look carefully at his forehead, you notice that little lock that hangs yeah. down there? That actually would signify that he is the reconfiguration of the god Osiris. And Osiris is the dying exactly. and resurrected right. god of the Egyptians. Right. Just like Christians, Mithraeus believed in the concept of resurrection, which may explain why both religions were popular to members of the Roman military. Faced with the daily risk of death, who wouldn't put their faith in the possibility of resurrection and eternal life? But what's most compelling is evidence that Mithras's followers celebrated his holy birth on December 25th, the same day that Christians would later celebrate the birth of Jesus. It was shocking to me when I learned that nobody talked about Jesus' birthday as December 25th when, right. when Jesus <laughs> was walking the earth. Yes. It was Mithras' birthday. That is correct. And this is because December 25th was for the Romans always a traditional important holiday, the feast of the Saturnalia, which went on for 12 days. <laughs> and everybody was expected to give presents during oh that goodness. time period. And so, so suddenly 12 days, gift giving, December 25th. And a lot of these symbols do find their way into Christian iconography. As it turns out, Mithraism is embedded in the Gospels themselves through the story of the three wise men. At the Church of St. Apollinaire Nuovo in Ravenna, Italy, the iconography is still Mithraic. Here we have the three wise men, also known as the Magi. This is the scene as recounted at the birth of Christ, that these three wise men are bringing these gifts to the Christ child. And the hats that they're wearing, in Greco-Roman art, this sort of became the standard hat that would be used in their artwork to denote somebody who's an Easterner. But these hats weren't worn by just any non-Christian from the East. Called Phrygian caps, they were the official hats of the Mithraic priesthood, also known as the Magi. Even Mithras is depicted wearing the same style of hat. And although there are no Christian symbols on the Arch of Constantine, the arch is literally ringed by eight magi-looking figures wearing the Phrygian hats of the Mithraic priesthood. But if Constantine was the worshiper of a sun god, how could he have championed Christianity unless he created a new version of Christianity, partially fashioned in the image of Mithras? To do that, he would have had to convince Christians that he was one of them while in reality supporting the introduction of pagan ideas into their faith. And to do that, Constantine needed the help of someone, someone working on the inside of the early Christian church. But this leaves one problem. How could Constantine get true Christians to go along with his version of their faith? 
And what about the founding fathers of the church? After years of persecution, of worshiping in secret, surely they wouldn't let Constantine manipulate their religion for his gain. Or would they? There's compelling evidence to suggest that Constantine's vision was a postscript to what really happened at the Milvian Bridge. As it turns out, while Constantine was still alive, there was only one church father who recorded Constantine's life and his celebrated conversion to Christianity. His name was Eusebius, and besides becoming Constantine's sole biographer, he also became Constantine's right-hand man in the Christian world. According to Eusebius's writings, it's here at the Milvian Bridge, north of Rome, that Constantine had a vision of the cross and a dream about Jesus that inspired him to win the battle and change the world forever. So here's the Milvian Bridge. This is the bridge that gets associated with the battle. So this bridge behind you becomes, in a sense, a metaphor for the change of human history. Yes. The bridge becomes a way to refer to not necessarily the battle itself, but the consequences of the battle. Yet in Eusebius's first draft of this account, he doesn't mention Constantine's vision at all. No vision, no dream yet. So Eusebius's first account of the Battle of the Milvian Bridge that took place somewhere right where we're standing, even Eusebius, who's like yes. the church father, bishop, great yes. admirer of Constantine, does not mention visions. In that account, no. Without a vision of Jesus, how did Constantine convince his contemporaries that he had converted to Christianity? Eusebius's own writings suggest that Constantine persuaded Eusebius to rewrite his account of the Milvian Bridge during a great banquet that Constantine held for the leaders of the Christian Church in the year 325. After years of persecution, Eusebius and his fellow bishops were now being hosted by the emperor himself. And it seems that it was at this banquet, 13 years after the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, that Eusebius first heard anything about Constantine's vision. So Constantine tells the story about the vision of the cross before the battle at the Milvian Bridge. When Constantine tells the story, he emphasizes, first of all, the vision of a cross in the sky at noontime. Secondly, he then had a dream in which Jesus Christ himself appeared and explained the vision to him. Almost he, like a, he's a prophet. He has visions, he has dreams. Jesus speaks to him. Precisely. And here, in these original texts by Eusebius, one can see the impact of Constantine's story on Eusebius and his fellow bishops. So here's Eusebius's description of the banquet. He compares this banquet with the emperor to the coming of Jesus. And Christians had anticipated if there was going to be a Christian ruler, it might well be Jesus come back to earth. And now suddenly it turns out to be the emperor himself. Now portrayed as a Christ-like figure, Constantine turned his so-called vision into the official history. And that history was soon propagated by Christian art. Here we have Raphael. 
Yes. Now, Raphael, when he paints, he paints the vision in the sky. It's a cross by this right. sign, you will conquer, and so on. This is mythology becoming history. Yes. Even without knowing the narrative, you just want to stare at these frescoes. So this is sort of a last attempt to reaffirm this papal narrative, which had already been shown to be a fiction. A myth based not on history, but on a fiction. But if Eusebius's biography of Constantine represents the myth, what did Constantine really believe in? The only direct link we have to Constantine is his arch, which is adorned by pagan symbols. But on it, we can also see reliefs depicting three former emperors. The philosopher Marcus Aurelius, the conqueror Trajan, and the statesman Hadrian all stolen from previous monuments and strategically recycled for his arch. Begging the question, why would Constantine decorate a monument to his own achievements with reliefs taken from other emperors, unless he was really saying something about himself? Isn't he telling us what everybody thinks are winners are really losers? And me, I'm, I'm the real winner. At the end of the day, I'm going to refashion the world in a way that Hadrian Trajan and Marcus Aurelius could not even imagine. I would agree with you that Constantine would have been very happy if people looking at his arch had been able to take away the message that he is going to supersede the legacy of even Rome's best previous emperors. But how was he going to do that? The answer may lie at the very top of the arch. Here, there is an inscription, and it states in Latin, Instinctu Divinitatis, which describes Constantine as divinely inspired. But if it's not Jesus who's inspiring him, which God is? When looking at what's depicted on his arch, what we find are pagan gods from the Roman pantheon, and none so prominently rendered as the sun god Apollo. The light is amazing. And it's so appropriate with the rising of the sun god right there to have it illuminated by the sun this way. Before Constantine's alleged vision, he followed the official religion of the Roman Empire, the imperial cult, a pagan religion that worshipped Apollo above all else. Much like the pagan god Mithras, Apollo was the sun god that represented the light of creation. According to the imperial cult, Constantine, as emperor, was a superhuman avatar, the link between Apollo and the rest of humanity. And from the archaeology, it's clear that Constantine bought into this idea completely. He commissioned this 12-meter statue of himself. And not surprisingly, the statue came with an enormous head. Built into the statue's healthy hairline may be evidence that Constantine believed he was more than a mere representative of Apollo. There are dowel holes that certainly were for some kind of insert, and it seems likely that it was for a raid crown. That's not Christian to me. To me, that's saying, I am God. 
Right. There's absolutely no humility uh, in any of Constantine's self-fashioning. I mean, he's very happy to have a 40-foot-tall statue of himself looming over this space in the center of Rome. He allows cities in the north of Italy to erect cults to his family, to worship him as a god. He is aloof, he's yes. giant, and he's yes. godlike. Yes, he's superhuman. He is superhuman. The image of Constantine with sun rays emanating from his head not only matches the earliest images of Apollo, it also matches the iconography of Mithras. And is it just coincidence that Christian art begins to depict Jesus the same way, with a halo of light around his head? Or was Constantine combining all the gods of light into one? When Constantine claimed to have had a vision of the Melvian Bridge, which religion was Constantine truly embracing? Did Constantine abandon paganism for Christianity? Or did he blend Apollo and Mithras into Jesus Christ and then refashion all three in his own image? As it turns out, when Constantine had his arch built, he topped it off with a bronze portrait of himself. Destroyed in antiquity, this statue depicted him riding the same kind of chariot as Apollo, seemingly taking off into sunny skies. In 325 AD, Emperor Constantine convenes the Council of Nicaea to decide the basic tenets of Christianity. He brings together the most powerful church leaders from around the world to discuss legalizing a formal Christian religion. One of the interesting things is, it becomes clear that what he is primarily interested is in unity. He wants the Christian religion to provide the ideological basis for the empire. The goal of Constantine's council was to unify the faith, both religiously and politically. After weeks of debate, the various bishops and priests agree on a set of principles that unify all of Christianity and place the religion firmly under the control of the emperor. And he then used his authority to say, okay, guys, this is it. Things got drastically changed under Constantine. We have a complete redefinition of how God is to be understood God now is the protector of the state, which then seeks to use the religion for its own purposes, to unify everything, because you can't have much dissent and run a state. Constantine also unified the Christian Gospels and limited the Gospels he considered fit for the state religion. Constantine made it clear which Gospels he considered acceptable. He commissioned the creation of 50 copies of a Christian Bible, which contained only the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What happened to the other Gospels? In 382 AD, another church council literally banned Christians from reading them. Under the Christian Emperor Theodosius, all other Gospels were considered heresy. Were banned or buried their owners arrested and killed. There were all these other texts that real believing Christians loved. And for a long time, it must have been read until the bishops came around to say, thou shalt not read this, but thou shalt read that. 
What was contained in these lost Gospels? What made them so threatening that they had to be banned or destroyed? No one knew for nearly 2,000 years. These lost Gospels reveal a very different view of Jesus, a different approach to spirituality. In 1945, a remarkable discovery unearthed a large collection of lost Gospels. In Egypt, near a town called Nag Hammadi, a farmer and his companions found a sealed clay jar with an 1,800-year-old payload. The jar contained 52 separate texts with titles like the Acts of Peter, the Apocalypse of James, and the Gospel of Thomas. These were literal lost gospels, mentioned by ancient writers, but apparently buried after the Roman Emperor Constantine's consolidation of power in 325 AD. The scriptures had only existed as legends until now. And perhaps the most surprising of these lost scriptures was the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is a fascinating document. It's translated from Greek to Coptic, and it possesses sayings of Jesus. And a lot of the things that are contained within the Gospel of Thomas are also found in the New Testament. The difference being that the Gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic Gospel. The Gnostics were a sect of early Christianity and that disagreed with many of the precepts of the emerging Christian hierarchy. Gnosis is a Greek word meaning knowledge, and Gnostic means one who knows. And if they could find that peace of God within, that true humanity within, why did they need to have any priest or any bishop? They could march to the beat of their own drummer. It says, when you know yourselves, then you will be known and you will understand that you are children of the living Father. In other words, if Jesus can be taken as a child of God, so are all of us sons and daughters of God. He doesn't have anything that we can't have. We can have the same kind of relationship to the divine, that same kind of oneness with God. The Gospel of Thomas calls for a personal connection to God without the need for organized churches, priests, and bishops. There were lots of priests and bishops who took offense at these Gnostics who had their own way, had their direct kind of line, their red telephone to the divine. That did not sit well with the authority figures in the church. And that may be the reason the Gospel of Thomas was considered heresy. The independence of Gnostic beliefs undermined the church hierarchy. The Gnostics believed their own Gospels were just as valid, if not more so, than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the case of the Gospel of Thomas, they may have been right. 
When these Gnostic Gospels were discovered in 1945, a disturbing issue arose. It turned out that the lost Gospel of Thomas could conceivably be older than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is a debate among scholars uh, regarding how to date the Gospel of Thomas. What we do know is that we have some very early Greek papyri of the Gospel of Thomas. And it looks as if portions of the Gospel of Thomas are very early. In fact, portions of the Gospel of Thomas may go back to the earliest days of the church. Most scholars believe the four traditional Gospels were written within a generation of the death of Jesus, 40 to 60 years after the events actually took place. But material in the Gospel of Thomas may be older, based on its simpler content. But by the year 300 AD, the Gnostic movement within the religion was seen as a threat to the hierarchy of priests and bishops. The Gnostics and their Gospels emphasized a personal relationship with God, without the need of a priest or an organized religious body. They really believed that there was something within, that they had a, a direct kind of access to the divine. They didn't really need to have priests and bishops. They didn't have to listen to that kind of authority. Meanwhile, an emerging Christian hierarchy was getting the attention of Roman politicians. With the Nicene Council in 325 AD, the Emperor Constantine solidified the power base of the more orthodox bishops and their hierarchy. The four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were in. The Gnostic Gospels were out. at least officially. It's important to keep in mind that these other Gospels that are not in the New Testament were in fact read by people and appreciated and loved by people for a long time. It seems that Constantine not only worshipped pagan gods, he saw himself as having a special relationship with them. If Constantine saw himself as divinely ordained, he would have seen his reign as a new founding, he would have believed that he was responsible for changing the course of human history. And the new founding needs a new capital. Rome would no longer do. So he went to what is today Istanbul in modern-day Turkey, and he founded a new capital for his new empire. He didn't name it after Jesus or the apostles. Rather, he stayed true to his nature, and he named it after himself. He called the new city Constantinople. He left Rome, and he certainly never returned there again. Settled on this incomparable site. It bridges the two continents. It's strategically and tactically located in, in virtually an ideal position, easily defended. And I think he wanted a monument to himself. He wanted his own city with his own imprint on it. Despite Constantine's reputation as the first Christian emperor, the most dominant feature of Constantinople's skyline was not a Christian church, but a giant column 
that was once topped by a huge bronze statue of the sun god, Apollo. The statue is long gone, and the column is under renovation. But at the time of Constantine, people were worshipping the sun god here. When the city was built, this was a big plaza or forum, and that column was in the center of it. It's about 100 feet in the air. What's significant about it is that in subsequent years, Christian bishops and theologians were very upset about the fact that the people of Constantinople conducted divine services here. And yet, Constantine's statue of Apollo was not like other pagan images. He did make a slight modification to it. He replaced Apollo's face with his own. But what's even better is the tradition continues that in this statue, he put a relic of the true cross. So he's attaching relics of Jesus to or inserting them in this statue. So he erects a statue of himself. And this statue depicts him as Apollo. But for good measure, we've got a little bit of the true cross mixed in. Yes. Did Constantine pull off the greatest hoax of all time by pretending to be a Christian? Was he actually equating himself with both Apollo and Jesus? Or did he merely see himself as their special emissary? To find out, Simca returns to the arch. But this time, he's not looking at what's on the arch. This time, he's looking at how the arch was positioned. From this bird's eye view, he's reminded that Constantine's arch is off-center by almost two meters from the original road that ran through it. But why? The Romans were famous for their feats of engineering. Surely they wouldn't make a mistake when building the emperor's new arch. There had to be some other reason, a reason that must be hiding in plain sight. Based on ancient records, we know that during Constantine's time, there was a colossal statue that stood 108 meters behind the arch. But this was not just any statue. It was a 30-meter-high monument to Apollo. Is there a connection between the statue and the arch? Expert Elizabeth Marlowe thinks she's found that connection. So then I started playing around on the living room floor in my apartment where I made a little cutout of the arch and I propped it up and I got a doll and I set him up and then set the arch up in front of him and I worked out the proportions very carefully, lying down and peering through the central passageway. For me, that was the aha moment. Based on her living room reconstructions, Marlowe came up with a compelling new theory as to why Constantine's arch was built where it was. But to prove her theory, Marlowe first had to brave rush hour Roman traffic so that she could gain the right perspective. The evidence on the ground confirmed her hypothesis. Constantine's arch was built off-center on the road so as to perfectly frame the Colossus of Apollo behind it. According to Marlowe, as you entered Rome, you would have seen Apollo's head looming above the statue of Constantine on his arch, as if watching over Constantine. But as you moved closer to the arch itself, the sun god would have dropped below Constantine, 
until he was left standing in the center of the main archway. At the point when the statue is framed in the central passageway, it is the figure of Constantine that is now looming above in the sky. As the sun is setting, what is rising is... is Constantine, yes, yes. The arch is literally a reframing of the sun god, with Constantine on top of the arch. Marlowe has revealed a clear example where, on the surface, Constantine seems to be putting himself under Apollo, but covertly, he is letting us know that he is greater than Apollo. Can it be that he did the same with Christianity, seemingly worshiping Jesus while replacing Jesus with himself? Our investigation has revealed that Constantine merged the great pagan sun gods Mithras and Apollo and replaced their images with his own. Maybe that's not blasphemy by Christian standards, but it does tell us what Constantine thought of himself. By depicting himself with rays of light coming out of his head, Constantine was telling the world that he was to be worshipped as a god. Now, where does that leave Christianity? Was Constantine willing to step aside and bow down to the king of the Jews as any Christian would? I don't think so. I think Constantine took Jesus and refashioned him in his own image thereby turning the anti-Roman rebel we read about in the Gospels into a symbol of Roman imperialism. To find evidence for this, Simca travels to the Archbishop's Chapel in Ravenna, Italy, where there's a 6th century mosaic that depicts Jesus in a whole new light. That's a mosaic of Jesus dressed as a Roman soldier, although if you look at it more carefully, you can see that he's actually a Roman emperor dressed for command. He's got the military equipment, and of course he has the cross over his shoulder. So you can kind of see that Christ is also taking on the, the role of being the Roman emperor. He's depicted as the emperor. As the emperor in a military role. So Constantine didn't start running around dressed like Jesus. Right. He got Jesus to dress like him. Right. The irony is that after Constantine, Jesus, who had been crucified by the Roman army, was now depicted as its leader. But what was Constantine's goal? Was he trying to change Jesus? Or was he trying to replace him? To answer this question, Simca now looks into the plans Constantine made for his own funeral. Well, he was actually buried in, uh, in Constantinople in the Church of the Holy Apostles, which no longer exists. It was reported that he was buried with the 12 apostles surrounding him. So Constantine prepares his burial by creating a real coffin for himself. Right. And then these pretend coffins for the other disciples. Right. If you take Jesus' place, one way to interpret it is, I, I am Jesus. Well, you could see it that way. On Earth, the Roman emperors do become the stand-in for Jesus because now with the Christian Roman Empire, the emperor takes on the role as being the leader of the worldwide Christian community. But by taking Jesus' place, did Constantine see himself as someone who could promote Jesus' message or subvert it? Can the arch also answer this question? From this high vantage point, Simca suddenly makes a discovery that would have never occurred to him below. 
how you position something relative to something else, that's sacred geometry. He's essentially putting himself in a relationship with the Flavians. Just on the other side of Constantine's arch is the famous Colosseum built by the Emperor Vespasian Flavius. Across on the left is a triumphal arch built by the same Emperor's son, Titus Flavius. And in the center, where there is now a circular depression in the grass, once stood a giant fountain built by Vespasian's other son, Domitian Flavius, one of the greatest persecutors of early Christianity. Why would Constantine want to associate himself so intimately with the Flavian dynasty? As it turns out, the first century Flavian emperors have gone down in history as the men who destroyed Jerusalem and the holy temple in it. They could literally boast that they had torched the house of God. Jesus wept for the destruction of the temple. In contrast, by positioning his arch in close proximity to the destroyers of the temple, Constantine was permanently linking his legacy with theirs. But if that wasn't enough, he celebrated the Flavian name as his own. He called himself Flavius Constantinus. Could it be that just as the Flavians boasted that they had defeated the God of Israel, Constantine schemed to defeat the religion that worshipped Jesus as God's son? But as we have seen, Constantine was going to do it not by oppressing Christianity, but by adopting it, not by defeating it, but by defining it. He would out-Flavian the Flavians. He wouldn't fight people, he would fight their ideas. He would defeat Jesus by transforming him from a crucified Judean rebel into a Roman emperor. For 1,500 years, people accepted the story that Constantine was a true Christian, that he had a vision of the cross, and that he converted a pagan Roman Empire to Christianity. But our investigation has revealed another story, one that isn't particularly Christian. We're not the first. Other investigators have noticed discrepancies in Constantine's character. But they concluded that maybe he wasn't religious. Maybe he was just pragmatic. But maybe he was religious after all. Not in a Christian sense, but in a pagan sense. It seems that he put his faith in the sun. He believed in the sun's only begotten son, himself. <laughs>